Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of High Impact Coffee Hour. This is Katrina. Oh, Ikim's uh, eating her oatmeal. <laughs> we'll keep this in the podcast. Hey, guys, what's up? <laughs> um, we got one of my friends today which is very exciting. Her name is Tasvia, and she's also a psych and public health researcher. Um, she's currently a master's student at Emory. But in addition to that, I believe she currently has two other jobs as research coordinators at Harvard and Stanford, respectively. Uh, I'm doing relatively well. Thank you for asking. Um, as a side note, uh, I did get my first vaccine dose, so I'm really excited to get my second one. Um, That's awesome. And overall, I think COVID has kind of been a whirlwind, but like as a very introverted person, I've also kind of acclimated to this sort of lifestyle uh, that we've been forced into. And um, as a little bit about more about myself and Ikem already touched on this slightly. So we kind of go a little ways back because of undergrad where we both attended the University of Southern California, where I studied um, psychology, Spanish and public health. And I graduated um, last year and then started grad school at Emory University where I'm currently getting my master's in public health on a part-time basis and then I also entered um, the workforce on a full-time basis so I'm also a research coordinator at Harvard University um, specifically their Kennedy School of Government and Law School Um, and I'm also a grad research assistant at Stanford and I've been trying to keep at this sort of adulting slash milestone upon milestone thing, but it's all been through like a computer screen because of COVID. So it's been strange and often exhausting, but all, but you know, things could be worse right now, all things considered. So I'm glad with how things are. That's incredible. All that you've managed to do in this year of COVID so that you should be super proud of yourself. Um, A little structure overview. We're going to talk a little bit about Tasvia's honors thesis, which is what she did at her undergraduate institution at USC, supervised by a clinical psychologist, Dr. Stanley Huey. And then afterwards, we're going to move into her current research and talk more about what she's doing now. We'll get started. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So the paper title is One Size Cannot Fit All, a Thematic Analysis of Perspectives on Culturally Competent Mental Health Services. So Tasvia, to begin then, could you tell us what your thesis was on? Yeah, definitely. So um, my thesis, which I'm hoping to publish soon, fingers crossed, um, this has just kind of been on the back burner among many other research related things due to COVID and all. But my thesis is an examination of what cultural tailoring, quote unquote, or what culturally competent mental health services look like to members of the general public. And so I was kind of exploring the understanding from a consumer standpoint, which can often be different from what we perceive to be like the expert perspective. And by experts, I mean clinicians and researchers. And so there's a little bit more background, um, socioeconomic, racial and ethnic disparities in mental health care in the United States have kind of been widely studied in the U.S. for um, the past two decades or so. And prior to that, this area just simply did not have the traction that it does today. And I think COVID-related disparities and Black Lives Matter has kind of reinforced the importance of these issues, um, 
but this project was initiated before the pandemic. And again, um, you're probably both already very familiar with this, but psychiatric and mental health problems are already undertreated in the US. Um, but marginalized populations, whether they're racial ethnic minorities or low income communities, they receive even lower rates of treatment. So that means they're less likely to seek care, their communities are more likely to harbor stigma, um, they're less likely to disclose mental health diagnoses, and when they do initiate treatment, they're less likely to continue it. And um, this is especially when you compare them to white Americans, particularly those of higher class standing. So quote unquote, culturally competent mental health services has kind of emerged as a potential avenue or a potential solution to kind of address these disparities. And how effective are these solutions? We don't really know. There's a lot of ambiguity ambiguity in the overall literatures. And I'm happy to dive into some of my own theories about this. Um, but for now, I guess one question I've often gotten is why or really what would there be in terms of a distinction between general versus cultural competence when it comes to providing mental health services? And a two, I think a 2011 study found that how effective um, a mental health treatment is or how well mental health treatment works could be determined by the client's or the patient's racial and ethnic minority background, suggesting that it might be valid to distinguish between general versus cultural competence in mental health treatments. Um, however, since then, there hasn't really been a consensus on what cultural tailoring or cultural competence really entails in mental health services. Um, so through my study, I wanted to kind of examine what may or may not be generally perceived as effective in providing that culturally tailored care. And to do this, um, I kind of posed three main questions. So what the first is, what themes come up when you um, talk about beneficial or helpful practices in culturally tailored mental health services? What themes come up when you talk about unhelpful or inert practices? And finally, what themes come up when you talk about potentially harmful practices with um, non-experts, with lay individuals? And my rationale for kind of focusing on general public members or lay people, if you will, rather than clinicians and researchers is because there's often a discrepancy between what is deemed as like evidence-based, quote unquote, and what the public perceptions are. And more importantly, in mental health care, like psychotherapy research has consistently shown that non-experts uh, who don't share professional beliefs are less likely to adopt professional guidelines for treatment plans. So really understanding, um, conceptualizing and engaging these lay perspectives is sort of key for engaging people in mental health services, particularly among populations that are already sort of lacking in this sort of engagement and lacking in the receipt of mental health services. There was a pretty big qualitative element in your, yes, um, yes in your thesis, which uh, at the time I thought this was quite ambitious, to be honest. I feel like you were maybe trying to like do a PhD project in an undergraduate thesis. <laughs> um, I will say that out of like the entire honors cohort of ours, because we were both in the same honors cohort, this was definitely the most ambitious project, which, which um, you know, is, is quite impressive. But could you tell us a little more about the 
qualitative nature of your study? You know, for example, like who did you interview? What was the structure of those interviews? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because I did not have kind of the because I was like just an undergrad, um, I kind of had to dip into an undergrad pool to get my um, participants. So I interviewed 124 undergraduates. Um, and this was part of a larger study. Um, and I think race and ethnicity wise, the respondents were fairly evenly distributed across groups, except Asian Americans were probably the most represented. They were around 40%. Um, and uh, the second question was the like how the interviews went, right? The structure. So essentially, they completed um, three main surveys: the demographic survey, uh, measure of ethnic identification, essentially multi-group ethnic identity measure, it's called, and it's a validated measure, um, and a measure that was developed by my mentor, Dr. Stanley Huey, um, the Ethnic Minority Student Services Survey, or the EMSS, um, and this. EMSS and the follow-up interview that kind of had to do with the EMSS was central to my thesis. And the, to talk a little bit more about the, this Ethnic Minority Student Services Survey, this is a survey that lists 62 um, culturally tailored mental health practices that were kind of derived from published randomized trials with ethnic minority participants. And participants rated these 62 quote unquote culturally tailored strategies on a scale from on a Likert scale from not at all important to very important. And there was a follow-up semi-structured interview. Um, and we basically asked participants to elaborate on or rationalize their responses to help us understand why they thought what they thought was helpful, harmful, or you know, unhelpful. And they also ranked them um, according to whether minority clients benefited more, um, minority or whether white and minority clients benefited equally, or whether white clients benefited more from each of these strategies. Um, and so for the data analysis part, um, this was sort of an exploratory study. So I applied like very standard inductive qualitative techniques where I developed a code book of themes that kept coming up in the interviews. I coded the responses appropriately. Um, and then I also trained another RA in the lab to code 35 interviews chosen at random to kind of measure and ensure there's inter-rater reliability. And we found each code to have at least um, moderate to high agreement. Um, so we measured inter-rater reliability code by code. What challenges did you face? It definitely took me an entire semester. So um, one of the biggest challenges I faced with, and this was the very first like full throttle, like purely qualitative study that I had done. And I think like the biggest challenge of qualitative research is um, it's very iterative in nature. So there's constant back and forth and you have there's a lot of like, agreements and disagreements that you kind of have to like ultimately like have a consensus within and so it's never just okay I looked at this data I analyzed it not it, you know like with quantitative stuff yes you can like analyze data in different ways um, and have apply different models but you're not really constantly revisiting the data itself um, as much as you are the analysis piece of it but here like you are constantly like having to read between the lines and kind of but also making sure that you're not putting in like your own 
general like predispositions and so there's a there has to be a balance between that and so having to take all of the raw data at face value but also like trying to make sure you're not missing anything and going back and forth um, and developing the codebook, I think the codebook was like a 30 page codebook. It took, a, it was a very grueling process and I had to keep editing it until, um, until we like, until I was done training the, um, other RA. So that, I think that was the most time consuming part of the study, just developing that codebook. So uh, did it take you one semester, including training the RA? I think I would say it took me a semester and a half because I trained the RA like in the final semester when we were writing up the thesis, but I had started the code book long before that. Well, that's awesome. Cool. And I'm glad that you're able to do qualitative research because I feel like that's something that a lot of researchers tend to maybe not think as, don't think of it as valid as quantitative research, but it's so important to right. have people's stories and these interviews and having these code books to be able to discern the larger themes and then have that research be published. So that's incredible. Um, and so now I guess you can go into the uh, your findings and what you found at the end of the research paper. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, this was like a very exploratory study. I didn't have like any initial hypotheses to generate from existing literature to kind of work with. Um, so I applied inductive qualitative techniques for that reason, where the codes kind were kind of developed um, as a result of like looking at what themes kept coming up in the interviews. I didn't have like a pre preset like set of themes to work with. Um, and the biggest consensus out of these themes that I found through my interviews was that people kept telling me that there was this need to personalize care that accounts for um, each client's or each patient's social environment rather than trying to adapt standardized treatments by making generalizations based on race and ethnicity. Does that kind of make sense? Yes, um, that makes total sense. Okay. And that, that effective um, mental health treatment that what they per perceived as effective mental health treatment considers not only race and ethnicity, but also how one's identity and one's thought processes might interact with the social environment in which they reside. And that is especially important to do so without kind of undermining the individuality of each person and without, you know, perpetuating stereotypes. And so that kind of kind of reaffirmed my pre-existing notions about cultural tailoring that while it is important to recognize race and ethnicity and mental health, it's definitely not enough. There's definitely a need to go beyond because simply attributing one's mental health struggles to this static notion or often stereotypical features of their race and ethnicity might primarily lead to blaming the culture while doing little to actually come up with tangible solutions or sustainable solutions. Oh, wow. That is such incredible work, especially to do that at an undergrad level. I mean, it's Thank you so, much. so awesome. And I can't imagine how this wouldn't get published. And I hope that it does get it soon, because I think it could help inform a lot of future studies and hopefully be able to uh, be translated into actual clinical approaches where people are taking the individualistic and culturally competent assessments as well as treatments for people who aren't just whites or just from like the majority culture of the from in the United States. How would you tailor um, a therapy session for, uh, let's say, a minority 
patient. For, for example, like what if you had to conduct a training session for therapists who, um, you know, work with minority patients, how would you advise them to approach it? Um, so one big harmful approach, one big approach that was considered harmful by a lot of the respondents is coming in with preconceived notions about this person's racial and ethnic background um, or even socioeconomic status. Um, one, I think the most important thing that I would try to establish from the get-go is, and obviously by no means am I a clinician, but based on just the findings of my research is to essentially just like leave all of those at the door um, and come in with like a, an open mind and the you know blank canvas and trying to account for their individual interactions with the social environment, um, what role they play within from a communal perspective, from a community-based perspective, and looking at their experiences more from a social environment lens than like, you know, like trying to reinforce, um, what is a better way to yeah, like instead of just looking at it purely biologically or looking at it from like the yeah. DSM level, exactly. which has no cultural competencies at all. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. And as we know, there's a lot of clinician bias in uh, therapies and it's difficult to mm -hmm. tell someone to just like strip it all away because they're going to be bringing that into the sessions. And so it really does require people to go through better training of different um I don't know diversity. I don't know if diversity training is even enough. I think that it needs to be even more embedded into how yeah. we give out. I think it needs to be. Therapy. There definitely needs to be some like conscious cognitive effort into yes. rethinking their approaches and like these preconceived notions. And I um I actually read this on Reddit. Um, I mean like this like <laughs> I don't know if anyone's seen that as well, but would recommend. But there's this article about like they found um that like empathy training for prison guards. Um, or prisoners, like how it actually reduced their like, sorry, I think it was for prisoners specifically, how it reduced their chance of like being back in jail or like recommitting a crime. Wow. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Which I thought yeah. was really cool. Definitely. And seeing how that could maybe be translated into clinical approaches mm -hmm. and, and um, environments because yeah a lot of people don't have empathy or regard for other people's cultural experiences and then they may misdiagnose or overdiagnose people of color as being symptomatic for a specific um, diagnosis and we've seen yeah, this yeah. with like serious mental health illnesses like schizophrenia as well as like depression anxiety uh do people of color um also over are, are they also overrepresented in uh, diagnoses with schizophrenia yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Are, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Black men are overrepresented, but again, there's this. Um, there's also disparities in like certain diagnoses over others. For example, when it comes to developmental disabilities with children, white kids are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, whereas black kids are more likely to be diagnosed with conduct problems, and mm -hmm they will even if they are showing like very similar symptoms it's just there's there's also not not only is there a bias usually in treatment but there's also a bias in like diagnosis 
yeah, yeah the assessment sure. level and at the clinical level so it needs to be changed from every single level because otherwise yeah. it's just going to continue being propagated and yeah we've seen this come to the forefront now of the conversations and research so hopefully Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I feel like this is um this is this could potentially also put more pressure on minority therapists or minority clinical psychologists who may feel the burden of having to you know actually do the work of training these people because I can't imagine having um you know like white male white straight male clinical psychologists coming in like training people on minority issues. I just can't imagine that having the maximum effect. Um, mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that would also be a difficult part in this type of training, but it, I, I think it would work. I think it would be rewarding, but unfortunately the burden where it places, I think remains unfair. Yeah. Um, and in terms of like the race and ethnicity of the mental health provider themselves, um, interestingly, I'm thinking of like one meta-analysis or was it a systematic review or in psychotherapy research where they were looking at components of cultural tailoring and um, they found that there haven't been any like significant differences in treatment outcomes based on the race and ethnicity of the health providers themselves. Um, And that is something that kind of sort of aligned with the perspectives of the participants in my study where they were saying, you know, it's really more about treatment strategy than race, race, ethnicity, but it also turns out that minority providers are usually more effective in presenting that cultural humility aspect in their treatment modality. That makes sense. Yeah, I was about to say like, oh, I thought that uh, people from diverse backgrounds would be more effective, but it's because they have the cultural humility behind it and as well as like the proper mechanisms to help with the treatment instead of like it's not just their identity and just being present that's getting people exactly. better. It's them actually putting in the work and understanding how to deal with these cultural ethnic um, treatments. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's it's sort of like if you are a white um, clinician, then it doesn't mean that you can't actually, you know, have the cultural awareness to tailor your therapy sessions for your patients accordingly but it's really just about whether they're willing to put in the effort to do that. Exactly, exactly. Um, Could you tell us how this project has informed your current work? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. I think this study has really reinforced my interest in more um, intervention-specific work, again, to kind of understand what works and what doesn't. So my current work has been less exploratory like this and more process-based and intervention focused. So I am currently involved in a project at Emory um, that has been on community-based mental health interventions aimed at reducing traumatic stress from racial disparities in school discipline policies in Midwestern schools. Um, Because uh, there's a ton of literature that shows that um, black youth and black Hispanic or Latino and Native American youth are more likely to face exclusionary discipline uh, policies like suspensions, um, referrals to law enforcement, expulsions for the same offenses than their white counterparts. Um, And so uh, I'm currently assisting with a with a psychological first aid slash like community resource referral intervention that's aimed at reducing the kind of the traumatic stress that results from these disparities 
racial disparities um, in Midwestern schools. And then I'm also involved in another project aimed at promoting not just healing from racial trauma, but also promoting like collective efficacy and community organizing among marginalized black youth. And um, the project I'm currently coordinating under my two PIs at Harvard is a randomized control trial kind of examining the impact of healthcare accreditation on health services for inmates in US jails. So a large chunk of that intervention or accreditation process actually involves improving um, support for mental health concerns, suicide prevention problems, uh, prevention programs, not problems, sorry, and substance use uh, among incarcerated individuals. So I'm becoming, again, increasingly interested in kind of um, evaluating interventions, but also examining social and policy relevant structures that kind of underlie mental health outcomes, especially structural violence, structural racism, criminalization of people of color and pipelines to incarceration and how we can help people who are already in that pipeline and um, whether those interventions are at the community level or from more, from a more primary prevention perspective or whether it's on a larger scale. Do you guys do some sort of like assessment of where the institution is at, like their baseline um, level of like, I don't know, like way of coping with um, structural racism in their school? Yeah, so we do, I think for the racial disparities and disciplinary action um, study, we actually examined what supports are already available, um, what the typical um, the typical policies are within that institution, and we try to build upon existing resources. Do you know what the typical policy is actually? Because like at my old high school, we didn't have any of that policy. For um, dealing with like con conflict among uh, youth and all of those things, or like conduct problems, as they would say, or no, like like dealing with um, just minority students in general. We didn't have any policy that was specific to dealing with minority students or or dis uh, disabled students or okay. anyone not mainstream. Okay, okay. So these policies aren't specific to minority students, but they harm minority students the most. So expulsion policies, um, suspension policies, policies about referrals to law enforcement, these mm -hmm. things um, usually, uh, more often than not, a minority student or a disabled student is more likely to be on the receiving end of these policies than white students. And that is due to um, the bias that teachers hold. And this is, uh, this point is also made clear to the educators, to the school as well, right? Yes, the um, disparities in discipline. Do you, do you know if there's been like pushback from any schools or educators on that point specifically? Because I can imagine that like if you go to the Midwest and you tell educators um, or administrators <laughs> Yeah, th they might just, you know, they might just be like, we don't think that's true. We definitely don't do that. Like, mm -hmm. I can imagine that there would be a certain degree of defensiveness. Yeah, so I've been involved in some of the trainings. Like, I've moderated a couple of, helped moderate a couple of the trainings. And fortunately, I've, I haven't personally encountered that, but I've also heard of my PI saying, um, you know, there have been a few white teachers that have said, okay, like, why are you trying to make us feel guilty? 
And so <laughs> there's there's definitely a little bit of defensiveness and a little bit of pushback that results um, from these sorts of interventions. Hmm. And I don't know now if you want to discuss how you're hoping to use all these experiences to then do your future research or what do you see is in the future for you? Yeah, so I, again, as I mentioned, I am becoming more and more interested in like examining kind of the systemic and the right. social and policy relevant structures that kind of are behind these mental health outcomes. Um, and as an aspiring researcher, I think the main premise that I want to be central to all of my work or kind of the material correlates and the structural conditions that kind of lead to these disparities. And that often involves looking at a set of causes and um, the, looking at the concrete context that, as Katrina mentioned, really transcends any diagnostic manual that one could ever write. And um, any Western neoliberal ideology that solely focuses on individual subjects without, again, accounting for social structures and hyperfixating on personal responsibility and not collective efficacy and purely neurological or bio biological chemistry than um, capitalism, I guess. <laughs> and this is because, um, you know, contrary to mainstream Western psychological and psychiatric discourse, the reason oftentimes why your prognosis for depression or anxiety or whatever is probably getting worse is not because you have a bad attitude or you lack emotional intelligence or have a negative mindset or there's some sort of element of personal responsibility in which you're lacking because somehow you've chosen your own unhappiness. And, you know, neither is it about just a matter of poor biology or like um, an imbalance in the brain or like unlucky genetics or like low levels of serotonin. More often than not, it is a matter of the social and the material conditions of the world that you live in, the work that you hate, the lack of community in a hyper-individualist society and the loneliness that results, the job that you just lost, um, the debt that you have impending. <laughs> and so through my future work, it is these material conditions and kind of these correlates of mental health disparities that I would like to examine and um, kind of tackle because, again, those are the culturally relevant factors that we should be looking at and trying to improve to elevate the status of mental health in marginalized populations. For sure. That was uh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that was wonderful. Ikim and I were just uh, <laughs> nodding <laughs> along. Um, but yeah, yeah. like said all of my favorite words. I heard capitalism. <laughs> I heard liberals. Just yes. all my favorite words in a negative context. Love it. You no, know, we need Love to type it. it out and print it out. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, it's, it's so true. Humans do not exist in a vacuum. We're not just simply our minds it's it's mm -hmm. everything that's around us and it's our relationships and our relationships to our social factors as well and our environments that really shape our mental health and that's something yeah. that I really hope researchers start to integrate and that's why we need qualitative research as well because those interviews and and those experiences that people have are so integral to creating interventions and um, yeah 
evidence-based treatments. So I think especially with minority research, I think qualitative interviews can be especially helpful because a lot of times you do have like researchers who don't come from that specific background mm-hmm. and their understanding is highly theoretical. So then, you know, you know, sometimes biases mean that you reduce people down to like numbers and just like data, but mm-hmm. people are more than that. And a, a, a lot of times if you are not part of that um, community, you can miss a lot of important details that end up skewing your results. So I think it's important to, you know, maybe focus back to the to the roots of, of the community and go back and interview them and talk to them about what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think people like don't realize just how much your social environment, like material indicators actually mm-hmm. influence your health. Exactly. We're seeing, we're seeing more of that coming out in recent years, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we're seeing how minority stress and also like poverty and like material indexes influence things from like your pain tolerance to your hippocampus to memory to cognition. We're seeing like all of these interactions. And I think that they all point to the same direction, which is that your social environment and specifically where you are on the social hierarchy actually does influence your mental health and physical health outcomes. And I think people need to like get, get that across their mind. Like we're not paying people well enough and we're not giving people adequate health care. It's not just an argument about like you can take it or, or you know, you're just not strong enough or you can't work 10 hours a day, you'll be fine. No, you're damaging their health. Exactly. And I think that like, that's why I, I find public health to be really, really informative to my work, even though I would ultimately like to pursue a career in psychology, I think public health has been really pivotal because they do have this push to understand the social determinants of health that I don't think psychology has quite yet prioritized to that extent yet. But even there, like even within public health, I do want to kind of push this notion of like class and social and the material conditions that come with it and how that impacts one's health um, more with through my research. For sure. And I think, um, I mean, I don't know about like maybe cognitive psychologists or like computational neuroscientists will disagree with me on this, but I think <laughs> if you're a psychologist, your research should like theoretically always like trace back to reality, right? Like we're not talking about like theoretical physics. We're not talking about like quantum theory. Like this is tangible. Like this is about people's lives. At the end of the day, we're studying how people think, how they live, what they feel. We're studying human beings and, and, you know, human environment, environment interactions. And I think at the end of the day, as psychology researchers, we have to ask ourselves, why is this relevant? Is this helping people in some way? Um, as opposed to just like, you know, this is some interesting question, but it has no relevance for the real world. <laughs> just like, why are you, why are you doing this? Yeah. And I think that when you have it be, I mean, obviously that sort of research can be really intricate and detailed, but when you have it be reductive, especially to like the race level, it can dangerously lead to a bit of like race essentialism, if you will. Um, And that this can happen both in terms of like identifying the problem and also coming up with a solution, which may not be a sustainable or workable solution. And so that's why I do think it's also important to look beyond just race and ethnicity, which again is an important factor, but also account for like 
the historical and contemporary structural factors. Beautifully said. That is great. <laughs> and I really hope I cannot wait to hear about the rest of your journey and what you get to do once you graduate from your uh, master's in public health. Like we focused a lot on race um, and like ethnicity, but I also just like want to reiterate like another important factor alongside race, which is class. And so mm-hmm. yes. um, because well, it's an issue though. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah it's a whole intersectional socialism <laughs> exactly you exactly. said all my favorite words <laughs> yep yep and you know and Ekim knows this um I would like to take like a materialist perspective behind my work and because I'm most interested in low-income communities I do believe that like race um is like kind of understanding race is incomplete without understanding class and socioeconomic status is an important factor that kind of is behind these disparities and this and the premise of all of this work and we've had studies on both sides of the coin that have like that both have and haven't found differences and disparities when you control for socioeconomic status um, depending on obviously how they measured socioeconomic status but for the purposes of the research that I would like to pursue Um, currently and in the future, I tend to look at it through the lens of um, structural racism leading to mental health disparities. And there is an undeniable class element there for me because racial capitalism is very real, whether or not researchers are framing class as their primary sort of focus. So to back up a little, when I say structural racism, this encompasses poverty, um, wealth disparities, what else, Uh, like residential segregation, lack of neighborhood investment, um, barriers to education and employment disparities. And this can really be an intergenerational thing. And these social or more so structural factors do increase your likelihood of trauma exposure. And they also create a hierarchy of other priorities that kind of put treatment seeking for mental health and oftentimes even physical health on the back burner. And um, obviously, as I mentioned, there's no real consensus or strict blueprint really on what culturally tailored mental health services entail. But for me, the way I've been trained to understand this through both my mentors and my work, that it is more helpful to see culture again as this more dynamic rather than static thing. Um, So culture to me, in fact, is multidimensional and um, it's always changing according to human environment interactions rather than just like these static identity factors. For sure. And I will say that like I've had two therapists and they're both white ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, like they do not, they cannot relate to my background. And I would say that like any therapist would have some trouble relating to my background, given that I grew up in like different places. Mm-hmm. But I think their willingness to actually listen to me and to ask questions and to understand when it's like, oh, that's a cultural nuance right there that I do not understand. I better inquire. That helped me um, open up a lot more. So, yeah, so yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily like about the ethnicity of um, the people, even though like I think probably implicitly on some level that does influence the patient therapist relationship. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very important that therapists do putting the effort and coming to the realization that actually this is part of the job to understand mm-hmm. your patients from a multicultural perspective. Yeah, exactly.
wonderfully said. This entire thing is so great. And we were so happy that we were able to have you on and for you to describe your research. And I cannot wait for people to hear about it and to be inspired in ways that they can then integrate everything that you mentioned into their own research as well. So.